1: Stocks under pressure to kick off the new trading week as more strong economic data raises questions about the Fed's path forward. We are near session lows right now. This is the make or break hour for your money. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Sarah Eisen. Here is where things stand in the market. The S&P 500 sitting on a, about a 2% loss. Uh, that kind of gets it down toward where the rally started during j uh kind of public remarks last Wednesday, but not quite that low. The Dow off more than 500. Uh, the Nasdaq continues to underperform. Bond yields up a little bit on some more uh, sturdy economic data. Take a look at the sector heat map in terms of where the damage is really being felt. It is, for the most part, in the cyclical parts of the market, uh, although utilities, the yield sector is getting hit as well. Uh, You do have things like financials, uh, particularly getting hurt, as well as consumer discretionary and energy. Coming up on the show, we'll talk about China's changing COVID policy and the impact on the market and relations with the U.S. when we're joined by Eurasia Group founder Ian Bremmer. And later, former Council of Economic Advisers chairman Jason Furman says the Fed may have to go higher with rate increases than people currently think. He'll join us to explain why. Let's take a look at uh, today's action in the S&P in the year-to-date context here. Now, this is a very logical point for the sellers to really show up and try to get uh, somewhat aggressive And talking about how this rally off the October low looks a lot like in magnitude and character what we got from June into mid-August. It just went right up to the whole downtrend line from the the, the entire year-to-date decline. So it seems like the the moment when it might have happened, you have the volatility index sink below 20, all these things coming together. Now, you did have a weaker dollar uh, and also better seasonal trends, which maybe supports the market a bit more also, arguably, we are closer to when the Fed might be slowing down, if not pausing. So all those things going back and forth. And as I mentioned, we're still about 1% above where this rally started last Wednesday. However, last Wednesday is the one day in the last seven when the s and has actually been up. Take a look at the rest of the world. That's the ACWX versus the U.S. on a year-to-date basis. You see global stocks kind of catching up to the the S&P 500 on a year-to-date basis. The dollar coming down. Also, they are earlier in their kind of reopening and revitalization uh, period and and did not have the high highs in terms of manufacturing that they're coming down from as the U.S. is right now. So you can keep an eye on that. Also, kind of value sectors are more global uh, versus the U.S., which is still a growth-centric market. Let's continue the market conversation now with Fairlead Strategies founder and managing partner Katie Stockton. She is also a CNBC contributor. And Katie, uh, great to see you and have you on a day uh, like this. How are you thinking about, you know, this pullback that we got, uh, that we're getting today? And and how deep do you think it might go?
2: Well, I'm not entirely convinced that this is the start of the reversal down, but it certainly doesn't help the indicators. We have short-term momentum falling off a bit in here it's starting to impact our short-term gauges to some degree but not on a widespread basis yet so we want to give it a couple of days and reevaluate there are signs of upside exhaustion very similar to what we saw in mid-august so your comparison Mike to the recent summertime relief rally is very fair the indicators are set up similarly the declines you know on the back of that of course were very severe. So we're sort of mentally preparing for something like that. I do have a sense that perhaps the positive seasonal influences into year-end might prevent that until January, but even still, the upside appears to be limited here.
1: You mentioned, um, you know, as, as we've been talking about, the similarities to what we saw in the summer. What are the differences aside from just the seasonals? Is anything about the, the nature of the rally, the, the internal behavior, the, the leadership or anything distinguishing it from what we did see in August with that peak?
2: Not to any great degree in my work, is, except for the fact that it's just a more mature bear market cycle at this stage. And we like to see it mature just in terms of the time frame which we're considering to be year to date. Uh, But the market internal measures have not gotten to that place where they're really extreme yet. I think we are going to need to see some kind of VIX reading that's up in maybe the 50 area before we see this bear market cycle culminate. And market breadth looks very similar as well. We saw great breadth expansion for a few weeks, and we have that now here as well. And yet it still is at a lower high versus previous highs. So the breath measures are still in these downtrending situations that suggest that we'll see more participation on the next down leg.
1: And is the pullback that we're seeing in energy, of course, by far the leadership sector of the year, uh, it's continuing today. It's still very modest in the grand scheme of things. But is that something that you think uh, is to, you should be concerned about, or is it an opportunity?
2: Well, if you think about the energy complex, it really hadn't rallied that uh, or uh, downtrended just like crude oil prices had or like natural gas prices had. So it's somewhat remarkable how well the energy stocks have held uh, held up in light of those declines in the commodities. Now that we're seeing natural gas today down something close to 10.5%, Again, I find it somewhat remarkable that the reaction just isn't that terrible. Uh, And yet natural gas is looking overdone to me on the downside based on the DeMarc indicators. And WTI crude oil has good support in the $70 to $75 per barrel range. So I do think that there's a floor to this weakness in the commodities and there and also that the energy stocks will be able to resume their longer-term uptrend and also longer-term trend of outperformance. We have in the energy sector something close to a 60% gain year to date. And I think we can trust that next year won't be quite as impressive in terms of relative Mm -hmm. performance.
1: Katie, thanks so much. Appreciate you running through it all with us. Of course, Mike. All right, Katie Stockton there. Let's talk more about crude pulling back this afternoon amid a number of moving parts in the industry, including an OPEC meeting over the weekend and the implementation of a price cap mechanism on Russian oil. Brian Sullivan joins us live from Brussels with the latest. Brian, what what in all this should we be uh, most focused on?
3: All right, let's get you the takeaways here, Mike, for you, because it's been a long day, a lot of headlines coming at everybody. Number one, just the bottom line, it's a new salvo in Europe's energy crisis. As Dan Jurgen said earlier, it's kind of day one of the second stage, the price caps, the EU sanctions. Russia has vowed retaliation. And this price cap, in addition to trying to cap the price of oil sold to non-sanctioned nations, may actually also limit Russia's access to to crude oil tankers because of financing and insurance regulations, which would limit the amount of oil they can sell around the world, unless they start to build out what we have called sort of Russia's secret oil navy, documents that have been obtained by CNBC showing a number of things. Number one, a large number of really old super tankers, some of them bound for the scrap yard most likely, have been sold to what they call undisclosed buyers. My sources at ship brokerage houses say they don't exactly know what that means, obviously it's undisclosed, but that it's likely either meaning it's Russia or related to it. Here's why. We know the other countries. Here's another document that we received today about this topic. Look at this. 52 recent sales of super tankers have gone, Mike, to undisclosed buyers. You've got UAE. You've got China on there as well. India follows just off that list. So one wonders what kind of sort of naval oil naval fleet that Russia may be building up. Now, tomorrow we're gonna to be talking about natural gas. Today was oil, tomorrow's natural gas, the U.S. role. You just heard Katie Stockton talking about it. And I wanna end with this. Earlier this week, or last week rather, the CEO of Spain's largest utility and gas importer, Enagas, made one point very clear. Despite decent storage levels right now, the energy crisis here is far from over. Listen.
0: So definitely the crisis in Europe is not over. But it's true that we are uh, initiating the the winter season in better conditions than expected. So today, Mike, I think it's fair to
3: say is day one of the next leg this year, probably covered next year, the very real concern. We're going to hit it all day. The role of U.S. LNG talk about companies and stocks that may benefit as we are just selling so much to Europe because let's hope it doesn't stay cold here cold is bad back to you
1: yeah for sure Uh, and of course uh kind of squeaking through so far uh this winter brian but i want to bring back what you were talking about in terms of you know the the shipping uh maneuvers and all the rest of it as well as what opec did or didn't really do this weekend and knit it together with a three percent drop in brent crude is it just a market's evaluation that look supply in aggregate is not going to change that much or are there other macro factors driving things today
3: Okay, macro factors, do not forget about the fact the U.S. is still selling oil from our SPR, Mike. That's about, whatever, a million barrels a day. That's still going on. It's about ready to wind down soon. So there's been kind of this artificial force, and they're going to have to buy that back. Also, with regards to super tankers, there's a lot of confusion out there about what kind of rules these tankers need. There's been multiple reports today of basically traffic jams of tankers built up near the Bosphorus, near Turkey, because these ships don't know the kind of documents in terms of insurance and financing proof that they might need. so I talked to people today and there's this thought that maybe it was a huge amount of Russian oil production right before the sanctions hit so the market kind mm-hmm. of flooded with oil probably why prices came down Mike if that oil sits at sea almost like artificial storage for a while yeah. while we try to figure this out the Brent crude price forecast, the mean forecast is I think 94 bucks for next for next month or the end of this year. So we'll see if this little short-term lull lasts. Not many I've spoken to believe it will.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little shadow supply there, Brian. Great color, thanks very much. Thanks. All right. Stocks are sinking in the U.S., but Shanghai and Hong Kong got a major lift today as China relaxes some of its strict COVID rules. Up next, we'll ask Eurasia Group founder Ian Bremmer about the impact of looser COVID policies on the global markets and geopolitical relations. Dow down 510. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. From a flat
4: tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
2: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give?
1: We're just off session lows here in the U.S., still under significant pressure as we head toward the close. The Dow down about 1.4 percent, but a different story in Asia. The Hang Seng and Shanghai Composite finishing in the green overnight, rallying on hopes of continued reopening and easing of COVID restrictions in China. Apple, meantime, is looking to accelerate its shift to move production out of that country, according to reports. Joining us now, Ian Bremmer, President of the Eurasia Group. Uh, Ian, uh, great to catch up with you. What's your sense sure. about what the, the Chinese authorities are doing here with this kind of marginal easing of COVID restrictions? Is it a, simply a gesture in response to some of the public outcry, or do you think that it's part of a, of a longer-term relaxing uh, of, of measures?
5: Uh, look, I think there's a real effort here. Uh, there is a, a clear pivot away from focusing on lockdowns, towards focusing on vaccination rates, particularly for the over 80 and those with significant pre-existing conditions, uh, that you're not gonna hear the word mandate, but if you, if you don't have a terminal disease um, and if you're not getting chemotherapy and those are, you know, these exemptions, uh, they're going to be working very hard in urban areas to get all of those people vaccinated, boosted by the end of January. Um, and that, that does reflect a desire, uh, first of all, not to have major demonstrations occur again, uh, and, and secondly, uh, to respond. Uh, to popular outcry that was not coordinated it wasn't a matter of political opposition it was two years of people having enough so i do think there's an effort to accomplish that but we need to understand that given the lack of efficacy of chinese vaccines and continued concerns about hospitals getting overwhelmed that reopening is going to be cautious it's going to be slow and there might be backtracking um if local officials find that they have um you know explosive caseload that's too great for them to handle
1: and presumably, uh, you know, President Xi is also wanting to make sure that there's not really long-term damage to the economy beyond what it's already suffered and, you know, trying to uh, to get beyond this phase uh, of, of retrenchment that the Chinese economy has been in.
5: I would say that is absolutely not the short-term priority. Uh, Xi Jinping in his party Congress speech uh, was not focusing on economic growth. He was focusing overwhelmingly on security international Mm -hmm. security, domestic security, prioritizing political stability in the country. And that means that if Chinese growth has a three-handle or a four-handle instead of a five or a six for the next year or two, but they don't have a million or two million or even five million, according to some studies, Chinese dying from COVID, that is something they're prepared to accept, and this wasn't just in the run-up to him getting his third term. In his private bilaterals at the G20 summit in Bali, there was no sense from Xi Jinping that he was moving away from zero COVID. He felt very confident the Chinese model was a correct one, and and his the part senior party officials weren't, weren't planning on moving. So I, I really think this is an this is an incident where the population of China made a real difference in the kind of policies we're seeing out of a dictatorship. That's a pretty big deal, frankly, Mike. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. Um, now, if President Xi's mostly focused uh, on security as a matter of uh, the top priority, where does that leave it with regard to U.S. relations? I mean, you had a little bit of a flare-up of, of apparent tensions over Taiwan, and we have companies talking about moving production out. Where does that sit?
5: Uh, there are still companies that are going to be moving production out especially when you look at anything that feels in advanced technology like it can be dual use for um the the consumer economy as well as for the military economy those export controls from the united states in october those aren't going away if anything they're going to expand Uh, and so clearly that creates a level of focused decoupling between the United States and China. Uh, But the relationship, I think, is more stable today than it was certainly when Pelosi was traveling to Taiwan. That three-hour meeting between Biden and Xi Jinping was about normalizing the relationship, about finding areas where the two sides can compromise and cooperate not just in areas where there's going to be very strong competition. And Xi Jinping is not looking for a bigger fight with the Americans right now. If you look at China's policies towards the American private sector since his third term, as well as towards the Germans, the French, American allies around the world, it's been wanting to ensure that those economic relations overall, the trade relationship remains robust. Uh, And I think that that's a time, to the extent that you're seeing more pragmatism from the Biden administration, it comes because it's easier to be pragmatic on China foreign policy as an American if it feels like it's coming from a position of strength as opposed to weakness. And I do think that's the way the Americans perceive it right now, both because of political instability, concerns, and economic challenges in China, and also because of the midterm elections in the U.S. and recent legislative successes.
1: Got it. And and just quickly, you know, you talk about, you know, Biden and Xi looking for areas where the countries might cooperate. What might that look like?
5: Well, I mean, some of it's gonna be re-engagement on climate, some of it mm-hmm. um, is going to be uh, efforts on, uh, on, on trade that isn't decoupled. I mean, this is the, one of the most important interdependent economic relations in the world, and no one wants to see that die. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's all about restarting high-level negotiations and engagement between cabinet members in the United States and cabinet members in China that through the pandemic had really been frozen. Let's face it, this is the two most powerful countries in the world and for Mm -hmm. two full years The leaders of both countries had not met face to face, despite the fact that they've been, you know, had a reasonably close and engaged relationship for well over a decade. That's that's almost unprecedented in peacetime. um, And it's good Mm -hmm. to see the back of that.
1: Yeah, a bit of a new uh, maybe steadier equilibrium there. Uh, Ian, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you very much.
5: You too, man. See you good.
1: Ian Bremmer. Uh, let's check on the markets now. You have the Dow down just about 500 points. S&P 500 uh, down just about 2 percent, around where it was in the last half hour. NASDAQ underperforming in the Russell, down 3 percent. But take a look at the regional banks today. They are sharply underperforming the market as the financials move lower. Uh, regional Bank Index there down more than 5 percent ahead. We'll talk to the CEO of KBW, who will join us with the bull case for the group. Closing bell. will be right back. let's check out today's stealth mover it is science applications international corporation the provider of technical engineering and it services for the u.s government beat revenue and earnings estimates for the third quarter company also raising revenue uh, guidance for fiscal year 2023 that stock is up uh, more than four percent today up more than thirty percent year to date part of that uh leading uh aerospace defense uh, category after the break Former Council of Economic Advisers Chair Jason Furman says the economic data over the past few days could spell trouble for the Fed and the market. He'll join us next to explain that. This year's final Fed meeting is next week, and after Friday's hot jobs report, We'll have, uh, the, will the Fed have to raise rates by more than the market expects? Let's bring in Jason Furman, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, to talk more about that. Jason, uh, it's great to have you here. I, I, you know, the, there was a little bit of an instant revisionism about the jobs number on Friday. People saying, well, maybe it was weaker than it looked on the surface. You had a shorter average work week and maybe the wage growth wasn't as strong. But you immediately felt as if uh, it actually did show uh, the economy running pretty hot. Walk us through that.
6: Sure, first of all, I think the wage growth is the most important. That's the output of labor market tightness or labor market looseness. You had the eye-popping November number. I like to look at an annual rate, 7.8% annual rate. People were right to point out part of that had to do with quirks and hours and severance pay and the like. But here's the thing. September and October were both revised up by 1.2 percentage points at an annual rate. That's among the biggest upward revisions we've seen, and that means average hourly earnings growth trend is probably about 5.5%, which means trend inflation is probably about 4.5%, and that hasn't fallen over the course of the entire year.
1: Do we are we confident in in the direct linkage between the core wage growth and how it translates into realized inflation in the coming year? Because that's going to be key to how, you know, the Federal Reserve has to treat it.
6: Am I confident? No, there's obviously large error terms around (laughs) anything. But if you tell me that over the next year we're going to have five and a half percent wage growth, I'm going to tell you we are going to have four and a half percent inflation, core inflation you know, plus or minus something. Um, And the plus or minus aren't huge, and they're roughly um, symmetric, the errors around that.
1: And so where does that bring us, do you think, uh, in terms of, because it's interesting, when we talk about how likely is a soft landing, people seem to be thinking it's either a soft landing Or it's a it's a drop into recession relatively quickly as opposed to things just continue to run sort of hot with inflation above trend and and maybe the job market remaining very strong. Where do you think it's settling out? Look, I think there's
6: four possibilities here. Um, There's a soft landing. I think at best about a 10 percent chance of that. Really hard to bring this magnitude of inflation down without a recession. There's the hard landing that solves it, but yeah, I agree with you. I think there's two scenarios that are even more likely than either of those. One is continued overheating. The unemployment rate stays below 4.5. The inflation rate stays uncomfortably high. I think, unfortunately, the most likely scenario is we have a mild recession. It brings inflation down, but it brings it down to something like 3.5%. And so it does not solve our problem, and we need to have another go at the whole thing.
1: Go with the whole thing, meaning the Fed would have to retighten. I assume from that point on. Uh, yeah, exactly. So on. I don't.
6: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I talk to people in markets who are like, "Oh, you have a recession and then you get two percent inflation." No, recession right. means lower inflation. It doesn't mean two percent inflation. So that you might end up at the back end of a recession, maybe a mild recession with a three and a half percent inflation rate, and then you have to have, you know, a whole other tightening cycle. So I don't think it's mm-hmm. like rates go up, rates go down, rates stay down. Uh, we might
1: have to deal with this more than once. And, and just quickly, you think that 6% is reasonable to target as a Fed funds rate uh, you know, as this unfolds?
6: I think it's fine for them to follow the data. I think 5.25 is the most likely. I think 6, mm-hmm. though, you know, is there a 20 25% chance of that? Um, absolutely. Right.
1: Yeah, Wall Street Journal is suggesting today that uh, it might, uh, the range might get up to five and a quarter next week. Jason, it's great to uh, catch up with you. Thank you so much. Good to see you. All right. And here is where we stand in the markets. You see the S&P 500 down 1.9%, just barely off the lows of the afternoon. Uh, NASDAQ continues to underperform, as does the Russell. uh, And the Dow is slightly outperforming. Up next, we'll talk about the big underperformance today for the regional banks with KBW CEO Tom Michaud. We'll ask if he's standing by his bullish call on the group. And you can listen to Closing Bell on the go by following the Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Regional banks deep in the red today, down more than 5%, underperforming the broader market. Uh, Let's bring in Tom Mischoff, CEO of KBW. It's a Stifo company right here at Post 9. Tom, uh, good to see you. Great to be with Um, you. So you as a firm, you've been uh, pretty favorable toward the regionals most of this year. They have outperformed versus other banks. Uh, Where does it sit right now? Because you got them getting hit hard today, a lot of concern, obviously, about macro Maybe credit and consumer stuff, but also uh deposit trends as well.
7: So we've been getting cautious as the second half has been unfolding. So in the second half of the year, we've pretty much reduced three ratings for every one that we increased. So we're getting a lot more narrow um, in, in our regional bank recommendation. Regional banks, the KRX is the index that we follow, uh has outperformed the SP and the big banks by roughly 13, 15 percent. So it's been a good call year to date. However, we're getting more focused on banks with strong balance sheets, especially when it comes to deposits.
1: Okay, Um, some of the concern out there just with the regional banks as we see them today has been, uh, what are they gonna have to pay for deposits or just deposits actually uh, in an ebb tide kind of after the the pandemic?
7: So let's start with the big picture. So the big picture is COVID happens, the government response, both from fiscal policy and monetary policy is to flood the economy with support. So we believe that roughly $3.2 trillion of excess deposits made their way to the banking system. And now we're unwinding that. So we think that number's now down to $2.5 And so banks are seeing deposits starting to flow out of the system as they look for higher rates. Now that's okay if you're a bank with plenty of deposits, Mm -hmm. but if you're a bank that has a very high loan-to-deposit ratio, it's changing the dynamic for you. So we think that the character of each bank balance sheet's a little bit different, and so we think that you're going to start to see a slowdown in growth over the coming quarters on banks who don't have the same degree of core deposits.
1: Where does that take you in terms of the better positioned banks right now?
7: So here's what it is. So if I wanted to boil it down to what I think makes the most sense, is there are some outstanding regional banks around the country that trades, trade it seven times next year's earnings. they got really good dividend yields. I think they've always done well on credit in the past. I think of companies like Old National, Webster, um, East West Bank. Those are some of the core names that we've been recommending. So we like that group. We've also now been going back the other way. Earlier this year, we upgraded both Goldman and Morgan Stanley because our view is that there's a rolling recession going through financials. The mortgage business and the investment banking business today feel like they're already in a hard landing recession. So our view is, what are the stocks telling you? We upgraded Goldman and Morgan when they were really out of favor. They've been working well. Our view is that sooner or later, the capital markets are going to open. Mm -hmm. And when they do, you're going to see really robust results out of the investment banking sector. So we've started to reverse the call that we had at the beginning of 2022.
1: Does all that imply that you're not particularly concerned about credit quality eroding in consumers or corporates? So, so we are a generally a soft
7: landing shop, mm-hmm. and I would say that's generally how we've built our models. We're expecting higher credit costs, we're expecting inflation to kick in. We, we haven't expected a hard landing as far as credit goes, But I'll tell you, we're paying a lot of attention to the shadow banking industry. Mm. I mean, We've been all talking about the last two weeks. I think it's kind of notable that there have been no hiccups in the banking industry, yet we've had some severe stress and and bankruptcies in the shadow banking, which is that crypto world. So there's going to be, I think, on the fringes, the the greater risk-taking balance sheets, we think, are the ones we're staying away from. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet we think the companies that have done well in prior turns are the ones that we like the most now.
1: Tom, thanks very much. Mike, Come good about. to be with Appreciate you. Appreciate it. All right, up next, analyst Dan Ives will join us to talk about the report that is sending Tesla shares sharply lower today. at story plus Salesforce sinking and REITs feel the heat when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Ali McCartney from UBS is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day, plus Dan Ives on Tesla's pullback and Dear Bosa on Salesforce. Let's get started talking with the markets. Ali, uh, we got a, about a 2% little gut check here in the S&P 500. Maybe no big deal after, you know, we got this rally of as much as 17%, but it seems to show how delicate the, uh, you know, the, the path is perhaps to a, a favorable economic outcome. We got two days of relief when we thought maybe the Fed was going to pause. They got a couple days of pretty sturdy economic numbers, and now we're worried again. So where does that leave you heading into year end with your uh, with your stance on the markets and, and discussions with clients.
8: Wow, there's a lot in there, Mike. Um, The last week has been a series of just days of whiplash, right? I mean, ultimately, we have this seesaw where trading activity, price action is whipsawing between which is going to go down further and farther, inflation or growth. So you have a day in which China feels like it's going to be reopening. The growth story wins. The market goes up. You get good inflation news and then that dominates. I'm thrilled that we've had the recovery that we have. I think as all your guests have seen, we certainly see more medium and near-term risks than we do upside and largely that's because if you think about where we are and what the expectations are for earnings for growth for inflation for the path of interest rates in 2023 and then you contrast that to a market that is trading from a multiple perspective above its historical high that just doesn't jive so i think from a market's perspective December, we're not expecting a lot of new news, but we are expecting some tax loss harvesting, selling, and we're expecting a lot of institutional money to probably stay on the sidelines and wait for the January reset. So this is a time to be thoughtful about how you're positioned, how much cash you have, where you wanna be going into next year, and what the expectations are. Probably not to take additional risk or be too cute.
1: And what about um, this rally that we've seen in bonds? I mean, a lot of folks seem to have listened to the observations uh, people have been making about you got some relatively safe yield to lock in. Um, where Where do bonds sit right now in terms of the risk reward?
8: So I think for the first time in, gosh, 14 years, you know, it's it's pretty high up on the scale. And so for people like me and my clients, the ability to, you know, to be able to incorporate something into a diversified portfolio beyond equities is definitely pretty exciting. We are have taken um, some short-term high-grade credit on the table, but we're still a little early, I think, to really completely lean into that trade and a little too uncomfortable with what's ahead of us to get really truly into upper tier high yield. But I think that the exciting part of 2023, even if we have a rocky first or second quarter, which we are expecting, is that for the first time since I ran a derivative desk you know, during the financial crisis, we are going to have the ability to invest in bonds in certain parts of the equity market and in many parts of the private market. Um, in a really fundamental way, once the story gets back to fundamentals and not just technical price action, and that's pretty mm-hmm. exciting.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a big uh, tidal shift. Uh, in terms of there being a bit of a cushion to the markets from bonds. Let's talk about Salesforce uh, at the bottom of the Dow today, dealing with another executive departure, this time Stuart Butterfield, Slack CEO, who's leaving uh, around a year and a half after that acquisition of Slack by Salesforce closed. Last week, the company said co-CEO Brett Taylor was stepping down. Dear Bosa joins us. And uh, Dee, aside from losing... Taylor, the street becoming a bit concerned with the fundamentals of the company kind of tease out exactly what seems to be plaguing the stock at the moment.
9: Yeah, so it's that top line growth. They have actually been improving the bottom line, their operating margins. However, this is a company that has been known for, you know, 20 percent plus revenue growth over the years. And at the midpoint of its forecast for the current quarter, it's expected to grow just nine percent. So this is a big step down. And the departure of Butterfield and brett taylor and by the way the Tableau ceo mark nelson he also left over the last week uh, fairly suddenly that's raising questions about who is going to lead the company next after benioff i mean he's been trying to figure out a succession plan for some time brett taylor was the second co-ceo that didn't work out Um, there's other people at the company but again people in the street love people like taylor and butterfield because they had created their own companies so who is remaining in salesforce that's one of the key questions Um, to sort of lead and who wants to lead Salesforce if it's going into a slower growth period where maybe it's already established.
1: Yeah, I I mean, a slower growth period, perhaps. And I I guess also it it seems to also fit in the category of a lot of these large companies that were enjoying such long term tailwinds in terms of top line growth, secular growth in their categories, and now maybe find themselves either overstaffed or just not productive as they'd like to be in some areas. So I I guess is a founder, Mark Benioff, the person to to try and streamline things if that's what has to be done.
9: Yeah, and we know that Mark Benioff is a sales and marketing machine. He is so highly regarded here in the Bay Area for that. The key question is who's going to be in charge of that next generation technology, continue that growth from that pandemic bump. There's a few candidates there. People know Sarah Franklin. She's CMO. Also, Brian Millam, he is the current COO. Excuse me, Sarah Franklin is CMO. There's also a name that is a little bit more under the radar, a guy named Steve Fisher. Um, He rejoined the company about two years ago, and he was seen largely as an architect of Genie, um, Salesforce's sort of latest technology, big breakthrough. So there are some people who could do it, but you know, attracting that engineering talent, Brett Taylor was really seen as key to that because he was so well-regarded. So at a time when they are heading into slower growth and they need to continue that sort of pandemic run or maybe become a little bit more leaner, who's gonna do that? Who's gonna pick up the slack?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting moment for the company. Meanwhile, after being cut in half, the stock looks a whole lot less expensive than it almost ever has, if you believe, uh, you know, the cash flows that are now projected. Uh, Dee, thanks very much. Uh, Great color on Salesforce there. Tesla also under pressure today. The company refuting a report from this morning that the EV maker is planning to cut production of the Model Y at a Shanghai plant, but shares are still down more than 6%. One of the worst S&P performers today. Let's bring in Wedbush securities analyst Dan Ives, he has an outperform rating at a $250 price target on Tesla. Uh, Dan, um, you know, whatever the specifics of, uh, you know, production cuts, not so much, uh, you know, as reported or what from Tesla in Shanghai, it seems as if just general sense out there that China is not really firing right now as a growth driver. Where does that leave the stock?
10: Look, I mean, China is the hearts and lungs of the Tesla story. And I think they did come off a strong month in November competition's increasing, but I still believe, I mean, they're going to battle through some of these recessionary headwinds in China. The long-term story is still there. I think this is a company that's going to do over 2 million deliveries overall into 2023, but the stock reacting, because this is, the, you know, I'd say a gut punch, at least from perception, you know, in terms of the Tesla story, but I do believe this is more of just a near-term patch, not the, the start of a longer-term trend.
1: There was a time, Dan, I mean, for actually for most of the last several years when a report like this, you know, w- wouldn't really hit the stock because you had those people who were so focused on the big picture and what Tesla was going to be doing to change the industry and the world down the road. And now you have a stock that's a half off of its of its highs. And it seems almost like it's it's just lost the benefit of the doubt where you have, you know, Elon Musk, uh, you know, preoccupied with Twitter or whatever the other reasons are, uh, it would seem.
10: You know, look, I agree. I mean, look, it was a Cinderella story for three to four years, and, and they've hit definitely a significant, you know, I, I think sort of headwind, not just in terms of China, but from perception, you know, especially when it comes to the must Twitter overhang. They're battling through that, and I think you've seen a stock that right now is a glass half empty from a Wall Street perspective, and you know, I think you're seeing a lot of jittery investors. Any news like this, you'll see the knee jerk reaction especially as China, that is the pin of the growth story. But look, in my opinion, that long-term transformational story for Tesla is unchanged. But clearly, that they're going through what I view as you know, sort of a fork in the road situation in China.
1: I mean, are, are clients, in theory, worried just in general about, you know, expensive consumer goods if, if, if people are starting to brace for, for some kind of an economic uh, recession?
10: Well, I think the bigger worry, and I heard it this morning from clients, is competition in terms of EV in China. You got BYD, Neo, others. You know, is that something that's going to have to cut price? That's potential they could cut another four or five percent. But I do believe there's a massive opportunity in China on EV. I mean, that, that that could be what is a trillion dollar market opportunity in terms of the industry. I think that's the yeah. bigger worry. Is that is that a, is that almost a Game of Thrones in the EV race in China?
1: Yeah. Um, Ali, uh, how would you think about one of the, I mean, this is like the marquee kind of busted momentum stock uh, that's already kind of taken its, its medicine to some degree.
8: I think the the last question you asked is, is the one that I would ask, which is do you want to be anywhere in consumer discretionary right now? And it's a really hard place to be. And when you have both cyclical headwinds and then you have all of the very specific and esoteric issues around the stock and its leadership, And you've had such amazing price performance over the last number of years. Is this the place that you want to be for the now? And I would argue that there are other more defensive and quality names to be in that have much less hair on them.
1: Yeah, uh, that would seem to be the way the market is, uh, is leaning at the moment. And uh, Our thanks to, uh, to Dan Ives. Appreciate it, Dan. Uh, let's talk SL Green. Uh, this stock tumbling today. Manhattan's largest landlord on pace for its worst day since September. The company announcing it has cut its dividend by nearly 13%. Let's bring in Diana Olick to discuss this. And Diana, in addition to this cut today, also seeing problems with apartment and industrial REITs. So what's behind all that?
0: Yeah, Mike, it's rough for REITs out there, no question. SL Green is an office REIT, and they're still looking at the work-from-home issue. And on top of that, they're seeing tech cuts because of uh, the inflationary environment and rising interest rates, et cetera, layoffs at tech companies. So that's SL Green. Then you move into the apartment in the industrial sector. And we saw news this week from uh, two very large non-traded REITs, and those are SL Green's S REIT and Blackstone's B REIT, and they have announced that they are limiting redemptions by investors because they reached their limits. So why are investors wanting to redeem? Well, because they're nervous about the markets, of course. They're concerned about the rising rate environment. They're concerned about the economy overall and how that's going to be hitting rents. We're seeing rents, which were sky high, starting to weaken a bit, which hits apartments. And then, of course, we're seeing if you have a recessionary economy, that's going to hit warehouse because people just aren't buying as much, so they don't need so much stuff to store. So we're seeing the publicly traded apartment REITs, names like UDR, Equity Residential, and Camden really getting slammed down over 30 percent year to date. And some of the fundamentals, though, are still pretty good. If you look at the coastal markets for rents, those are weakening a bit. But, say, Camden is in, you know, the Sunbelt area, which is still quite strong. And yet they're still getting slammed along with that whole REIT bucket that investors are just really, truly nervous about, Mike.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. So it does seem as if, you you know, y- you have to separate the uh, the subtrends that are going on in there. And I guess the bigger question, you mentioned the Blackstone situation. That was a private portfolio where they can kind of mark their assets as they wish, whereas the public markets, Diana, seem like they've taken a lot of that pain.
0: Right. And you're seeing this very, very wide gap between what those private funds are saying and what the public markets are saying. And I think that's where things get a little bit interesting because you don't Mm -hmm. know as much about those as you do what investors are doing in the public markets and where we can see where the rents are having their impacts, et cetera. So I think that's when we have to watch that divide between those two over the next couple of months.
1: No doubt. Uh, Diana, thank you so much. Uh, Ali, uh, what about this idea of REITs? I mean, it's obviously people went there for income. Now you can get similar yields out of many areas of bonds. Uh, do you think that uh, there's any value in, in, in office REITs or, or any other parts of the REIT space at this point?
8: So I would I would separate the discussion because we all know that no real estate, real, not all real estate is created equal, and I think that's never been more true than it is now. So I would say you want to lean in in areas where the demographic supports you for all the reasons Diana just highlighted. That's probably not in offices, given the systemic change that we have seen. But there are certain both geographic areas and areas of sort of the economic structure that I think are still supported. Now, when the public versus private conversation, those are different, too, because you have the price action of a lot of the public REITs, whether they're good, bad or indifferent, largely being informed by the interest rate movement during the day and as a duration and interest rate sensitive vehicle, as opposed to fundamentally saying, is this an undersupplied or oversupplied area? What are the demographics? Are they helping or hurting? And so office is an area I would stay away from. Industrial and warehouse seems a lot more interesting. I've heard a lot of anecdotal um, you know, news that you wouldn't expect around uh, you know, retail shopping centers getting more traction and having higher um, having lower vacancy rates than they have in much time, but I think you need to really dissect where you're investing and why you're investing there, and what your thematic reasons are for doing so.
1: Yeah, probably not the time for the broad uh, real estate sector uh, ETF, maybe at the at the moment. Ali, uh, thank you so much uh, for the time today. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Let's take a look under the surface of the market here. It's been a pretty broad sell-off for most of the day. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange is running with just about 90% downside volume. Did want to take a look at the two-year note yield. It did perk up as well today. You got the strong ISM services data, as well as that Wall Street Journal report about the Fed maybe going higher uh, for longer, even if it is slower. And so now we're up about 4.4%, although the S&P 500 has seemed to coalesce right around that 4,000 mark uh, to close. So we've gone back toward... Uh, Thursday to to Wednesday levels of last week have not given up the entire pop we got on Wednesday when Jay Powell did speak about the possibility of slowing down the pace of rate hikes. The volatility index up above 20 again after one day's close below that level. That'll do it for closing bell right now.
4: From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at
9: T-Mobile.com/now.